It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, the podcast that takes you on adventures into the wild for encounters with our amazing wildlife, meetings with interesting rural folk, and a welcome blast of fresh air. In this episode, we leave spring briefly behind to return to last autumn and catch up with Andrew Griffiths as he journeys the length of the River Tame in Greater Manchester from its high moorland source to its end at the River Mersey. Along the way, he meets a variety of volunteers, anglers and other heroes to tell the story of how an urban river has been revived that is full of fish and other wildlife once again. I also think it's the first of our podcasts to include the live catching of a fish. I hope you enjoy the journey. The Moors for the Future Partnership has been around for getting on for 20 years now. They've been working to restore the peat bogs on the moors that have been so badly degraded due to industrial pollution. The aim is to revegetate the bare peat on the moors and re-establish the sphagnum moss, the all-important bog-forming plant that is so sensitive to atmospheric pollution. There are many reasons for doing this, one of which is to hold back the water and keep it up on the hill. Every year, Moors for the Future and their team of volunteers do a kind of stock-taking or an audit where they measure the water table beneath the moor. This tells them how effective their restoration work is performing. They told me they'd had some very high-tech equipment for doing this. We drove out along the Snake Pass between Manchester and Sheffield and set off up to the plateau, following the brook. So I'm on the north edge of Kinder now, walking up Fairbrook Nays with a group of volunteers. And beside the brook, there's just quite a lot of water in the brook. And it is rather lovely. We've just left the Snake Pass and the traffic behind. And it's all the bracken on the hillside is bronze. 
and there's a real chill in the air and a bit of a stiff breeze that's going to make recording difficult as we go on but we're heading up towards the testing sites for most of the future where we're going to have a look at the Dipwell monitoring and I am with a very hardy bunch of volunteers three volunteers and two members of most for future staff. Isn't that a beautiful little stream? Actually, I love the... I caught up with Trish, our most for the future leader for the day. I'm a casual employee at most for the future, uh, which means um, I support the full-time members of staff uh, as and when needed. Um, so... One of the things you do is lead volunteers like us up to do the, the dip well monitoring. <laughs> uh, we do. Um, I mean, luckily for me um, and some of the other casuals, we get to go out and do a lot of the field work and a lot of the monitoring actually out on the moors, which is great. I, I just love being in the outdoors, so um, very and, fortunate. Uh, it was Graham just revealed to me that you're a team of fell runners. So, yes, I did used to do a lot of fell running um, and then actually got into doing triathlons so how long have you been running around these moors then? Oh, uh, a good 20 years. When we first used to run out on Kinder, it was still in the really badly degraded, you know, poorly degraded state. So bare peat everywhere, um, very messy to run through. Yeah. But um, people that I, I know that I, I've run with uh, that come out on the moors regularly have you know, all commented on what a change. Um, the, you know the the moors have gone from that horrible black to you know lovely green cover um you know even though that's still in the early stages just yeah. getting some vegetation yeah. we, we're still working towards creating a much more mixed and diverse um moorland plant community up there so it's it is ongoing um, it, it must be fantastic to not just have seen that through those 20 years when you've been recreational yes. use yeah. the moors really yeah. but to actually have been involved in I've it too now in it. Yeah. it must be a yeah. great feeling yeah, I mean, you're really leaving yeah. something worthwhile you know, yeah it's absolutely it's really rewarding and it just it's an honour to be able to feel that you're involved in something and being able to put something back you know having had yeah. all those years of fun and pleasure in, in the moors to you know, then be feeling, yeah, we're doing something to help them. That's fantastic. I think we better catch them up. I can hear metaphorical feet tapping. <laughs> we better catch them up. Just beneath Kinder Plateau, before the final ascent, we escaped from the wind behind a big boulder and I spoke to most for the future scientist, Tom Aspinall. I'm a research and monitoring officer in the science team at most for the future, so I'm responsible for kind of the science work that we do, looking at how the big practical stuff is actually uh, working on the ground making sure that what we say we can do is actually been achieved so it's when all this revegetation that's going on and we're recovering all that bare peat that, that yeah you know, those so, of us who live around here remember it being an absolute quagmire what effect that's actually having in the bigger picture yeah so we're looking at how the vegetation that we've put down is doing whether or not it's actually covering that bare peat up and, yeah. and going in the kind of direction that we want it to back to a blanket bog state yeah. and everyone goes on about the blanket bog and it's wonderful for conservation terms and it's wonderful for biodiversity but just tell me why it is so important for these people who are living down in the in the cities in the towns in the cities that are further downstream of here well a massive amount of rain falls on these hills so having a blanket bog at the top in a healthy condition can basically kind of delay water getting down into the streams further below right. these hills in the uh, towns like manchester etc so by by having a blanket bog in a healthy condition 
the work that we're doing is hopefully going to slow that water down um, right. and stop massive deluges coming off the moors in an instant just yeah. kind of yeah. making it delayed as it gets down the hill so that streams and rivers further down aren't bursting their banks quite so often. Now, to, talking to people, I've, I've got two main key phrases have come out for me. One is slowing the flow and the other is natural flood management. And, and yep. that's where this is where it all begins, isn't it? It's a philosophy almost that applies from the top of a, a river catchment where, where it all begins. Yeah. And it's a philosophy that applies from there all the way down, down the stream. Yeah, I mean, the hills are where the water starts its life, you know? The rain is actually falling on the hilltops. Yeah. So if we can kind of deal with slowing it down up here, it will have an effect all the way down yeah. uh, that water course. That's, fan uh, that's fantastic. Now then, you are a science monitor, and one, one of the ways that you monitor the effects of the work that's going on, you're out to do today, which is yeah. called dip well monitoring, dip which well. is a wonderful, I love that expression, dip well monitoring. Just just explain to me what that, what is dip well monitoring? Well, our dip well monitoring is, is a very scientific technique <laughs> of using a blow tube uh, to blow bubbles into more plastic tubes that are set into the peat. And do, the idea- I do that, like high tech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very effective way of getting important measurements on where the water is in relation to the peat surface. So what, what are you actually doing? You, you find it, you, you, you put your pipe down, you keep blowing, and when, when you hit water, it bubbles. When you hit water, you hear the bubbling sound. And once you've got that bubbling sound, you know you're there. So you stop and you measure the distance from the top of the tube that's in the peat to the water. Uh, so we can understand where in the peat the water's actually sitting. And what we want for a healthy blanket bog is a, quite a high water table, right. generally within 10 centimetres to the surface of the, of the uh, peat. That's fantastic. Right, so let's get up, brave the wind and go and get monitoring. <laughs> yep. oh. oh, my knees. <laughs> so the group has arrived at the control site now, which is as the whole of the plateau was 20 odd years ago, probably less than that, which is just black peat. And on the edges of it is the, is, is the big hags that you can see with the heather on them and the lichen growing around them. And then the vegetated moorland starts again. So they keep this area as a control site that's not been revegetated, just so they can monitor what effect the work is actually having. So there is a series of pipes that are like plastic it's, it's like narrow plastic drain pipe. It's like the kind of plumbing you get at the back of your sink. And they're sunk down into the moors and they have a little cap at them. Very, very simple. And a tube's threaded down and they blow down. So the team now are just doing about their various duties as a team of three. One of which is recording, which is a posh name for blowing down a pipe, which looks like the fun bit to me. Uh, the other is writing in a notebook and writing the results down. And the third is navigating from the different testing points on the site. And it is a beautiful day. The skies are blue. The sun's coming out. I'm on top of Kinder. I'm happy. I'll try not to sniff. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm, down, I'm crouching down beside one of these testing pipes. I've got Paul here with a pipe in his mouth and he's just told me, waiting for me to switch this on, he's just told me he's not in a rush. Okay, go for it, Paul. That sounds to me like you've hit water. Four, eight, four. So Paul is now, he's also got a, what looks like a, 
a joiner's ruler that's stuck down there as well, and he's now reading the, how deep was that? Yeah, so, so the water level, the water level is 484 millimetres below the top of the pipe. Right, so that's telling us, that's telling us where the water table is. So yep. that's telling us how, yeah, and we're on the control site here, aren't we? Yeah, that's yep. right. And then we measure the height of the pipe above the peak. So right. that is 120 millimetres. Yep. And we'll extract the height of the pipe from your first reading. From the first reading to get where the water, water table, table is. is. That's fantastic. I think we've got an absolutely superb bubble sample there. Yeah, well, Norm, just for your information, that is because I'm too far into the water. I've got to find the point at which I'm just touching the top of the water. Right. So that's a much quieter sound. Yeah, I think we got... Yeah, so Paul is just slowly lowering up and down that pipe, the, the, the plastic tube that's going down the pipe until he just gets, just hears that faint bubble. And there we've got it. The water table has been found. Thank you. On the way back down to the cars, I caught up with Moors for the Future volunteer, Sally. Sally lives in nearby Whaley Bridge, and she also volunteers for the Canal and Rivers Trust. If those names sound familiar, it's because of the recent Todbrook Dam scare, when the reservoir down wall threatened to breach, and the town below had to be evacuated. The thing with it is that it really demonstrates how important this work is. Because the thing with Todbrook is, um, as people know, that there was a huge scare over the dam yeah, breaking yeah. because the water levels were so high. And Todbrook is down a dip. Um, and it goes to show that, I mean, it's got no control over the amount of water that comes no, down. No. And if, if the land like this land isn't looked after and the water is slowed down, that just, just demonstrates what can happen, the amount of water yeah. that was coming down off the hills into that reservoir. Because it was going, going moss that was coming down off, wasn't it? It was the moors above Buxton, really, that, that's feeding down into those reservoirs. Yeah, up, up around Kettleshume and all yeah. around the back there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the water levels were so high, it was jumping out the rivers. Yeah. Um, and so it, land management is just going to be really important in the future. And, of course, um, the landscape's not dissimilar to where we've been, no, we've been working exactly. today. No, exactly. So it's, the more yeah. of this kind of work, that just is a real-life example yeah, of just yeah, the difference. Yeah, that really highlighted make. why we need to do this yeah, stuff, yeah. because... There's nowhere else for that water to go. Once it hits that reservoir, there's nowhere else for it to go. Um, so it's got to be managed further yeah. up. Sally's story really brings home the importance of the work they are doing up here on top of the hill. Now it was time to move downstream and find out what communities are doing to further help slow the flow of their river. I needed to meet Was Andrew, project manager of the Mersey Rivers Trust. Was is working on natural flood management projects in the River Tame headwaters, just below the moors near Staley Bridge in Tameside. Was met me at Staley Bridge train station. How you doing, Was? You all right? Morning, Andrew. Jump in. He was taking me up to a village called Millbrook, just outside Staley Bridge. Here, Was works with Tameside Council Green Space volunteers two days a week to build leaky dams in the streams coming down from the four reservoirs that lead up to the moors. We were meeting at Staley Bridge Country Park, a woodland area that has been created on an old municipal tip. 
along with lots of other places in the region, Millbrook was badly flooded in the severe weather of 2016. Was began by showing me two cottages that were flooded out when they found themselves caught in the eye of the storm. They served as a salutary reminder of what all these natural flood management and slowing the flow projects are all about. Well, it rained for a good 24 hours uh, and the water levels just came up and up and up. Um, the grids, the local streams, they, they, they couldn't deal with it. Uh, and as we stood here, the water level was up where the, the little sign is in the window. Um, uh, so we've got two what, like, quite idyllic looking cottages and uh, they were, they were actually, ground floor was completely flooded. Completely flooded. A, a metre, a metre and a half of, of water on the front of that property. Uh, and it washed the back of that, them properties out, washed the windows out, washed the door casings out. Uh, the little garage door that you could see to the left on the side yeah. was just a vertical drop on the other side where the water had just eroded the concrete away. Yeah. So that's what it's actually about, all this work that's going on. And we are, well, what, a mile, two miles from the moorland at the moment where, yeah, where yeah. all this rain is falling? It's about a mile and a half to walk up to the top of the moorland from here. And we're a mile outside Stalebridge Town Centre. The group of volunteers were beginning to assemble. I have a word with um, John. John at the back. He's, uh, he's the uh, leader. Hiya. Hello, John. You're, right. You're the leader. Thameside. Uh, yeah, Thameside Greenspace. This was John Corkman, a Greenspace Development Officer for Thameside Council. Greenspace is partnering with the Mersey Rivers Trust on their natural flood management project. John helps coordinate volunteers across Thameside's parks and open spaces. John and his team of volunteers are working with WAS to build leaky dams here in the Bushes Valley. So the work party is gathered around the tea making facilities on the van at the moment and I'm just about to get a cup of tea. That's lovely that, thank you very much indeed. Anybody need a helmet? Anybody need a helmet? Give us a helmet. very much. We began our walk out into the woods to today's work site carrying chainsaws and bow saws and all the other tools required for leaky dam building. I walked with long-standing Greenspace volunteer Christine Aspinall and John. Sometimes we have quite a walk onto a site, other times it can be somewhere where you can take the van a lot closer. Yeah. You know, and then we just have How far are we going today? I don't know, because I don't know where we're going. <laughs> Oh, right, OK. <laughs> to follow the stream. Short walk. Yeah. Well, we've, we've been working down this valley. Um, this is, a, think this is the third time I've been out on, on this leaky dams project. John showed me the first of the leaky dams. Yes, we're, look, we're looking here at what look like woven branches in the stream. And, yeah, we're looking at two different levels there. Uh, so that's a, leak, that's a leaky dam. And the interesting is going right across. Goes right across the valley. Yeah, you can see where wind comes, comes in at the other end. Yeah. And we've incorporated live material into it. So this will be a living beast. Yeah. This yeah. this yeah. barrier, if you like. And uh, like a barrier hedgerow. Well, yeah, it's like a, yeah. it's like a dead hedge. Yeah. Right, but there's yeah. living material in it. Yeah. And. So it's got stakes driven in either side, which are about three, four feet wide, and then the branches are woven in between that, which presumably are just, just tree branches you've got tree branches from the woodland we've, locally. We've copies from here, the area, yeah. uh, Which is making a really nice wetland habitat. The idea um, is to let normal flow through, and then if there's a surge, to hold back a surge. You must be really tough when you see something like that. Yes, when, when you see it work, uh, and you, you see what it does, the amount of water it holds back, and, and you know, myself and John have been down here in times of every rain, and this pool goes 
right back to the, these trees. It was, you know, a few hundred, if not thousand, cubic meters of water being held back just by one of these leaky dams. Uh, and in here, altogether, there's 32. Yeah. 32 leaky dams. Are we making a base here then? As I watch this team of volunteers in the woods, thinning out trees, clambering over streams and weaving their branches, it struck me that it was like watching a group of human beavers at work. I'd had a brilliant day with the Tameside volunteers, learning all about leaky dams, it had been great fun. I finished it off by having a proper chat with Was Andrew, project manager of the Mersey Rivers Trust, who is quite a story himself. I think what you're doing here is absolutely fantastic, isn't it? I had no idea all this was going on. I Thank don't you. think people do. When, no. You know, sometimes when you sit, you just... So it's all the social media stuff flies past. You just say, we built another leaky dam. You think, you know, Voz was built great. But, you know, you actually see what's going into it and the yeah. people that are involved with it. That's one of the biggest things I've noticed on social media when I posted on uh, my own page or the, the Trust page. You get a few questions coming in. What exactly is a leaky dam? And try to... Try to describe it in words yeah. and with a picture or two. Don't really do it, don't really do it justice. You've got to be on the ground and see it and take everything else in about it. We're taking a few dead trees out, we're pleaching a few live ones, we're opening up the canopy, let a bit more sunlight in. I think it's the way that they are an organic part of the yeah. living and the environment. They just become a part of that. Just part of it. System, yeah. which is, is, is such a lovely thing about it. It's, as in the title, natural flood management. Yeah. You're using all the resources that are here naturally. Yeah. Nothing man-made, been brought in. And all these people together, you, you know, learning new skills still, even after... I mean, I've seen people volunteering here for 32 years. Yeah. 23 years. And, yeah. You know, we've, we've had some still learning new skills. People in the 70s and their 80s. And, you know, some people use it as a, as, a, as a bit of a social. Yeah. You know, they, they might not get out otherwise. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, you're outdoors, in the fresh air, a bit of exercise. I, I came to the Rivers Trust with the, the passion to, 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 to do something with my river, my local river, the River Tame. Yeah. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be away from the river up in a, a woodland doing this kind of kind of thing. That's a lovely thing, the way it does connect with the river, though. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. About that, uh... Well, every, everything that you see here, all, the, all this running water all eventually ends up in the Tame, approximately a mile away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not only is it slowing the flow, it's trapping sedimentation, sands and silts back, yeah. back up here behind the dams, which obviously then leaves spawning grounds clear down on the main river itself. Is the Mersey Rivers Trust, has that, has that been a bit of a change for you as well, working there? You're a project manager there now. Yeah, um, yeah. What were you doing before? Oh, before that, I was working for a, a private company for North West Ambulance Service. I was preparing ambulances at Central Manchester Ambulance Station for the paramedics and the crews there uh, during the night. And when they came on shift at half past six in the morning, they had a, a fully prepared ambulance ready to go out on shift you on. couldn't get much more different from what you're doing now. Vast though. contrast. Yeah. Yeah, vast contrast. And I contrast. know you're a keen angler. Oh, I'm very keen angler, yeah. So... Yeah. so actually working in connection with it's the rivers. my dream job. Is it? it is, I mean, in my wildest dreams, you know, as a teenager growing up, uh, I wanted to get on with the, the ranger service. I've always loved being outdoors uh, and I've always wanted to work outdoors. I've come from a building construction game, working outdoors in all weathers, fitting windows, doors, yeah. roofing. Uh, and I woke up one morning and thought, I'm getting too old for this. Um, the 15th of October of last week, uh, I've been with the Rivers Trust just over a year. 
That's fantastic. So, that's, that's I'm thoroughly enjoying every. And aspect. I know you're a very, very keen angler. Just putting it mildly, and I know you guide, don't you, on the yeah, on, yeah. on those rivers, I, I do. on the urban rivers, which is an interesting thing in itself that these urban rivers have cleaned up to the extent yeah, now where the yeah. fishing is so good that where in some some of the more rural rivers the fishing is going down because of water quality yeah. issues and pollution and agricultural diffusion well, etc etc et a, a group of friends of mine that but the up, urban rivers are jumping they, they are yeah i have a group of friends who uh, regularly fish the likes of the itching the test and the the hampshire haven and uh, early season uh half a dozen of them come up here to fish the team because the team's so much better you know the, the, the standard of fishing in it in our urban towns um, you know, there's the, the trout in the team that I know of, personally know of, to over six pound. Yeah. And I know of bigger fish being caught. And you have very kindly, you're going to take me fishing on the team, aren't you? Yes, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Well, We'll talk more about that then. A couple of miles downstream of Millbrook is the town of Staley Bridge. One wet weekend in autumn, the Civic Hall became host to a two-day event organised by River Conservation Charity, the Wild Trout Trust. They called it the Urban Conclave, and the Saturday saw some of the region's leading river conservationists speaking to an audience made up largely of professional and volunteer river restorationists. These are practically minded folk. You won't find any mention of rewilding or the politics of the land here. Just put on your wellies, get in the flow, and fix up these urban rivers. The Sunday was supposed to be a practical day spent sampling in the River Tame, but so much rain had fallen, the river was out of bounds. So we huddled beneath a bridge to escape the driving rain, and I spoke to Sean Leonard, director of the Wild Trout Trust. The Wild Trout Trust is a conservation charity. It's nationally based. We do a lot of work in England, but also Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Uh, our thing is about improving river habitat practically. So we work with fishing clubs, with other community groups, with landowners, with government agencies, uh, with fellow NGOs, looking to improve habitat in the river and involving people in that process. And that's, that's what's relevant to everybody, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, you might think, well, trout trust what's... I'm not interested in trout, I'm not a fisherman, why does that matter? But, but, but tell me a little bit about the trout and, the, and, and what a trout tells you about the health of the river. Yeah, so I guess, I guess our point is that it's a, it's a flagship species, it's emblematic of a healthy environment. So if a river, for example, has got trout in it, then the water quality is good, there's a reasonable amount of water in it, the habitat is good, and it's also reflective not only of the river but all the land that drains into that river. So generally, trout are a good indicator of the health of the environment. So if, if you're walking by a river and you see some wild trout in there, you know pretty much everything in that river is working as it should be. It's pretty good. Particularly if there's a breeding population. Yeah, it's pretty good, it's for pretty sure. Good, so yeah. we're, all, we're all happy with that. Yeah. Now, we're in Staley Bridge at the moment, which is one of your wonderful urban conclaves, which is a big wild trout trust get-together. Yeah. And we're a few miles outside Manchester, and we're just up above us is the moorland. Yeah. And, um, I sat in a room full of people yesterday, which was fantastic, which was, it, it was a lot of people that are actually involved in river restoration or the river restorationists, as we like to call them. And they're involved in the actual practical sort of doing side of these things. Um, I never heard the term once rewilding while all those people 
were about the work that they were doing. I'm just interested why that was, because it struck me that a lot of what they were actually doing, a lot of the media, a lot of social media would actually be describing as rewilding. And yet the term wasn't mentioned once. There was experts speaking, people on the ground actually doing those. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it, the rewilding principle is about trying to restore ecological function to the environment. And I guess that is what we're about. The issue probably is the badge, the labeling of rewilding. Mm. Because lots of people think it's about wolves and lynx and, you know, uh, what do you call it? Charismatic megaphone or something like mm. that. But actually it's just about trying to get environments, in our case rivers, to function a bit more naturally. And if they do so, they're much more sustainable. Yeah, so if it's people want to call that rewilding, that's fine. But yeah. In terms, it's just a question of doing, isn't it? It it's is, yeah. Doing. And in, particularly in the case of the rivers and where we are on the, on the River Tame, it's restoring that connectivity between the urban environments and ultimately the moorland. Yeah, it uh, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with a big, what they call the rewilding projects going on on the moorland. Yeah. That green corridor ultimately going through Stalybridge, Ashton, Manchester, out to sea. Yes. Liverpool out to sea, which, yes. is, which is fantastic. But actually on that, on that subject, one of the things that works really well is a bit of benign neglect. So right. if, if a river, for example, is left to its own devices and we don't keep polluting it and we don't keep whipping water out or we don't keep dredging it, then it will sort itself out over time. And one of the great things about trout is that they will find good quality water and good habitat and they will live there. So the, the river and its trout and indeed other fish species will sort them out, sort themselves out if they're just given a bit of a chance. I thought yesterday it was interesting as one of the things that people, is one of the enemies it seems of the river restorationist is the straight line. Yeah. And nobody likes the straight line. Do we they? don't like it, but I mean, it's interesting. And I think I made that comment yesterday. You that, did, yes. That lots of people do like straight mm. lines in their rivers and they like sharp edges mm. and stuff, but actually uh, organisms, you know, whether it's, whether it's fish or bugs or plants, they don't like that. I think another thing that I thought that was really interesting yesterday was that we, 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 again, by the Tame, and then when we look at the history of the Tame and the history of many of these urban rivers, and they, they were the pollution during the Industrial Revolution and subsequently was quite unbelievable. I mean, somebody gave a demonstration yesterday of the Don, the Sheffield River Don. Yeah. I mean, I've seen photos from that period, the 1970s. I think it was actually very nearly 1980s with the surface of the River Don on fire. Yeah. And there's been so much in the media recently about how polluted rivers are and that. And I think, do you think that we're in danger of losing that, 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 that message that, that there's been enormous progress made? Uh, yeah, I think that's really valid. Um, you know, there are, there's a lot of moaning going on about the state of Britain's rivers, England's rivers particularly. And undoubtedly, lots of them are incredibly pressured. You know, we've got still, even on a day when it's pouring with rain across lots of England, we've got dry rivers in north of London or East Anglia. But loads of these urban rivers have made an incredible recovery. In my own case, because I'm so old, I rode on the River Tyne in the early 80s. And if you fell out of the boat rowing on that river, uh, it was slightly worrying. You know, you'd mm. probably come out of the water wearing various bits of detritus on your head. And yet the Tyne is now England's premium salmon river. And, and what we, I, I guess the next challenge is reconnecting lots of communities, i.e. people, with those rivers that are flowing past their doorstep. Absolutely. You know, so, so the recovery hopefully can be supported because the communities care about them. And, yeah. and the trout in the river as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you.
Dr. Paul Gaskell and fly fishing and river conservation writer Theo Pike both work for the Wild Trout Trust and run a section of the charity called Trout in the Town. We huddled under that same bridge during the wet weekend in Staley Bridge and I started off by asking Paul to explain the thinking that lies behind trout in the town. Basically, it's designed to uh, create education and engagement around um, basically husbandry and adopting sections of urban trout stream or rivers that are potentially capable of supporting trout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's really uh, two thirds of it is about the kind of the community, the people that live around the river and sort of arming them with the tools to sort of undertake that custodianship. And I'm you tend to be in the more more kind of the gritty kind of urban environment, don't you? More the, 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 the more people that live in the dense conurbations, you're in that kind of area, whereas, you know, the Wild Trout Trust as a whole gets involved in rivers anywhere, rural rivers. Absolutely. So it's, it's certainly that kind of post-industrial yeah. environment. Yeah. Um, there's quite a lot in the north of the country, north of England, there's quite a lot of these, you know, ex-industrial towns perched on the sides of the Pennines yeah. that um, as water quality is improved with the decline of some of that industry, trout have followed down yeah. that improvement of that water quality. And so, the, as I say, it's, it's, it's about the people that live around it and helping them, but then about a third of it is really, you know, the emphasis is on how you get that biological improvement um, to sort of to actually provide for those trout that are starting to recolonise. And it's really fitting that we're in by the River Tame today in a gritty urban environment, yeah, I it, say at the it, moment. It certainly is that, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're by the Tame and we're at the foot of the Pennines and we've got Manchester a couple of miles down the road, so it's actually perfect setting for it, isn't it? Yeah. I'm talking of river restorations, but I saw coincidence. We have Theo Pike here. Hello, Theo. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Uh, and Theo is... Some people, anglers will certainly know him because he's written... Um, could, can we call the Trout in Dirty Places the iconic book? Yeah. I think it, it has to be. We've got to call it iconic. <laughs> but it's, it's a really good read, and not just for anglers, because it's got a lot of the a lot of history, the clean-up of those urban rivers, which is an absolutely fantastic success story, isn't it? And you were involved with the River Wandle. Just just tell me, that was that was the first big clean-up that, that has inspired so many others. That, that's, tell me a bit about that. that that's right, yes. Um, we started work on, on the Wandle, um, alarmingly, almost... 20 years ago now um, and it was just in the early days a, b- b- a bunch of us who were who were anglers and concerned um, re- residents in in the boroughs of South London um, and we um, collectively discovered th- this um, um, amazing urban chalk stream flowing through the concrete canyons of South London. Um, it's had a fantastic uh, uh, history. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, it, it was probably the, the, the original chalk stream for the Victorian fly fishers, really, um, before the Itchen and the Test and the Kennet b- became properly famous. Um, the Wandle was there first because it was close to London. Um, and so, for, for example, the, 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 there's a really strong argument that, that um, the tradition of dry fly fishing, um, um, or, or one strand <laughs> of one strand of the tr- tradition of dry fly fishing, which is now a global thing. But I mean, what I'm interested in, I think what's so fantastic about these river restoration projects, and you touched on it yourself there when you were doing the Wandle, is the way that it, it, it's not just about you know you can or you can get so geeky about the biology and the ecology of it. Yes, you know? yes. But it's the way it brings the history in, and it brings the community in, and it gets the people everybody can get involved with the local river which is one of the great things it, it, it 
It definitely does, yes. And um, one of the great things about urban river restoration, uh, I always feel, is that um, when you've got rivers out out in the countryside, um, they're often quite difficult for ordinary people to get involved with because they're owned or at least access is controlled to them by farmers or landowners um, or just people with gardens that go down to the river and don't want um, people um, um, looking at the river yeah. in their gardens. Whereas urban rivers, um, ironically, there's, there's much more access to them. So, for example, here we are standing on a towpath beside the River Tame, or an offshoot yeah, yeah. of it in Staley Bridge. Um, and urban dwellers can come and help to clean up their river, help to look after it, yeah. um, because the river and its banks are probably pretty much in the hands of the local councils. And the local councils, of course, are really keen to have people get engaged um, and help them to keep the local environment clean um, and healthy and that's uh, and that's an activity that that can then give urban dwellers a stake in their environment um, and and an ability to to steer it towards greater health it was time to meet was Andrew again and take him up on his offer to go fishing on the river tame I met him at Stockport, where the river meets the River Goit and forms the mighty Mersey. We were on the edge of town, where the rivers flow beneath the motorway bridges, near the traffic islands. And it all feels an awfully long way from the top of Kinder. Was how are you doing? Good, yeah. Take me to your river. Was led the way down a track from the road through some scrappy woodland. Ah, first glimpse of the river. It's not exactly a weir, it's more of a rock formation. Yeah. Well, I fancy a bit of barbel fishing. Was took me to a favourite spot where he thought he might catch a grayling today. It was only a few hundred metres from the motorway bridge. Oh, that's lovely. What I'm hoping here is the fish are sat in that middle sea. Yeah. So we're looking at there's a there's a kind of a What's that, about, what, 20 metres yep. wide there? And we're looking at a fast, broken flow over, which is broken with a line of rocks. Is that a tumble-down weir? Was that a I weir think, at one Yeah, time? I think it's a, a weir what's collapsed over the years. And we're looking at a slow bit of the water put in between, just, just it's there, it's shelter, it's cushioned behind a big rock, and that's always where you look for fish, isn't it, was? It is indeed. And uh, that's because... Energetically, it's very efficient for them, yep. isn't it? They just sit they'll, there. They'll lie up behind a, behind a rock, um, and when they feel the need, they'll, they'll dip out either to either side or above that rock if they see food coming their way. In that big conveyor belt, in, in that the big flow conveyor belt, yeah, the flow, yeah. and they'll, they'll jib out a nice, tasty morsel, and then back behind the rock again until the next piece of uh, food comes their way. Fantastic. Are you going to get in and yeah, get Yeah, I'm going to make myself way, way down. This is quite a scramble down a very I'm going to steep... Try and, try and be casting into these slacker areas in between these, these two runs. We've got three main runs. So in the, in the two slack runs between, that's where I'm aiming to put the flies. And okay. just gently jig them down. It's so worth saying at this point, because I think if we're talking about fly fishing to a non-angling uh, non 
audience that usually we're thinking of fly fishing, we're, we're artificially tying material onto a hook to suggest a fly. Yeah. And it's usually unweighted and we're fishing nice summer fishing. But of course in winter, the trout are out of season now, which is why we're going for grayling. And in winter, we have to go down because the fish are going to be lower down, aren't yeah. they? You, you don't get the actions that you get through the springtime, summer and autumn. Winter, the insect life dies down a bit. So what we've got, we've got this really broken bit of river. We've got a slow bit of water cushioning behind and you're going to creep up from downstream and creep up and you're going to put those heavy flies into that slow bit of water and drop them down to where the grayling's sitting yes. waiting for a bit of food. That's the plan. That's the plan. <laughs> Off you go then, Wes. I'm right behind you, mate. <laughs> so he's got a short nine foot rod oh, and he's just put it in, into that slow bit and he's just casting it and he's tracking it downstream so he's casting upstream letting the flies sink and then the idea is that you have what they call a dead drift and that means that you have to time it with your rod so that the fly is going it just just looks like it's drifting down naturally in the water flow Whoop! is that a bite I thought you had a bite then. The point down and we're on. Oh, we're not on. Was that on? I thought it was a fish. But that was it. There was no more action. So we made our way further upstream to have a look at Harrison's weir. This is the biggest weir on the River Tame and is only a mile or so upstream of where the river forms the Mersey. It stops any salmon or sea trout getting any further. Wow, look at that, that is a big weir. There is nothing getting over that, is there? No. You've got your fishing hat on today, Was, and you've been guiding me on the on the tame, and it's just, it's unbelievable to think that we've been fishing where, and, you know, and there's grayling and there's trout within 100 yards of the motorway roundabouts in Stockport, it's just incredible. Yeah. We've, we've come a long way since the, uh, the industrialization of our rivers. Um, the last 20, 30 years, we've seen vast improvements in water quality. Um, but the main problems that I see at the moment are litter and tipping and plastics and rubbish entering the river systems. Um, yes, we have sewage issues, um, but I know United Utilities are working diligently in the background um, and upgrading their, their wastewater treatment. They are doing, it is still a problem, yeah, isn't it? Is I mean, problem, we do yeah. still see sanitary yeah. products halfway up trees we after do. we've had a spate and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, yeah. we've got the two rivers of the, the Tame and the Goyt, which form at Stockport to form the Mersey. Um, and the two contrasting rivers, the, the Goit is a lovely clean river. Yes, it runs through more affluent areas, uh, but I think the screening processes are much better. Uh, you don't see as much ragging hanging from trees uh, as you do on the Tame. And, and another problem here, I mean, we're standing in front of us, this weir court. This is Harrison's weir. I mean, that is a massive, significant barrier. I mean, there ain't nothing getting past that, is there? No, no. no. That, that's the, the, the first weir that you come to on the, the Tame system, and it's the biggest weir on the, on the River Tame. Um, We've got salmon running to this weir and they're turning yeah, down I mean, If they could get past this weir, there's a number of other weirs, but the, the other weirs, in, in terms of spate, I've seen this weir, it's 15, 16 foot high, and I've seen the difference between the top and the bottom of around 12 inches. Yeah. You know, a good, strong, powerful fish in them spate conditions will we'll yeah. still get up that weir. Yeah. You know, uh, and the, the weirs subsequently above there, between here and Staley Bridge where I live, there's 15 weirs of varying sizes, varying heights, but the majority of them are passable in space. It's like, it's like the goit. I mean, there's weirs on the goit. Yeah. But 
we're still getting salmon spawning right up, up in the headwaters. And yep. there's no reason why they wouldn't here if they could get this. This is the ob big obstacle, isn't it? The big it? obstacle, this. yeah. Come on, let's go and catch a fish and get out yeah. of this rain for a start. And was he's on. Oh, he's on. It's a lovely fish. It's a lovely fish. It's a trout. <laughs> it's a lovely trout. Oh, what a beauty. Look at that. That uh, must be getting off for a pound, that, would you say? I'd say so. That's absolutely lovely. What a beautiful trout that is. Excellent. About the average stamp of fish that is you get it? throughout the time. That's fantastic. Yeah. Even in the upper regions, you'll get fish of that quality. That's absolutely fantastic. So the trout swam off. It was mission accomplished. I left Was now and wandered downstream to the end of the team and the end of the journey for this podcast. Here I am, half a mile downstream from where I left Was fishing, and the river goes under a bridge, the motorway, and this is where the Thames journey ends, where it joins the Goit and it becomes the River Mersey. And once again, right on cue, the heavens have opened. It's a fantastic success story about catching trout in these rivers and the way that the waters have cleaned up since the industrial period. It's partly because industry's closed down, of course. Well, that's such a heartening tale for these difficult times. It does seem to be the case that while many of our rural rivers are struggling to cope with severe pollution and water extraction, Onstead urban rivers are on their way back and carry some of the cleanest water in the land. A huge thank you to Andrew Griffiths for the massive amount of love and hard work he put into making that little audio gem. As ever, you can discover much more about our rivers, angling and aquatic wildlife at our website countryfile.com. And please let us know what you think about the podcast by emailing me, Fergus Collins. I'm the editor of the magazine and host of the podcast. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, produced in Bristol in his bedroom by Jack Bateman. And thanks so much for listening. Goodbye for now.